Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from Joshua chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all among the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, for a very distant from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, the Shehan, the kings of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepsherah, Biroth, and Kirah-Jerem. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be among, upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we fear greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and jars of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this Lord's Day that we've come in your name to your house. Uh, Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to be able to worship together. We ask that you bless our time, Father, through this word. Uh, Father, remove whatever distractions we may experience being brought before us. Uh, Father, that we might encounter your word to hear what you have to say and then to do it. Father, help us remember 
the simplicity of the faith that you have given us, the simplicity of the call to which we have. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing. We all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. This text has been uh, an interesting one for me to explore <laughs> in particular. Uh, it's been on my mind for some weeks. I knew that it was uh, going to be mine to prepare in advance. Uh, but it's been tricky in one sense, but especially also as we've been away this past week uh, as an eldership for T4G, a conference that we get to go to the past uh, several years. And inside all of that, there's just a lot to explore in this passage, and a lot that could be said, and, and honestly probably should be said and has been said. But uh, quite frustratingly at the same time, um, it's also a fairly straightforward passage, uh, and you'll hear, you'll hear why frustrating later, um, as I neglected to apply one of the very prominent principles of which we're going to talk about today for this one. So in this passage, we have a lot going on, all right? We have come out of Achan and Ai, that is put to bed, it is a heap as it's supposed to be. And they moved to that time of worship that we saw at the end of chapter 8. But now, we turn out and start to look at the rest of the land. Things are beginning to change. The chessboard is moving, as it were. There's a lot happening in this passage. Uh, there was a lot happening in the previous passage, but it was just describing kind of a, a war. We didn't need to parse through that. And here, it's very tempting to parse through every exchange and to look at everything that's happening. What I want to do today is talk about two main points and break it up into the response of three main characters in each of those two points. Simple enough? Hopefully. That's my goal. You'll find, hopefully, prominently, that there's one character missing in this story, right? And that is what actually contributes to this whole problem. So, two points, three characters. First point that I want you to see today is that we have a God who has spoken. We have a God who has spoken. Again, the goal today is to keep it pretty simple. There are some tricky things that we will encounter in life and in this passage, but a Christian should always know the way forward because we have a God who has spoken. The Israelites have a God that has spoken uniquely, specially, peculiarly to them. He has told them what to do, and they've done it. When they have not done it, they have been corrected, restored, and rededicated to the task. I hope you have seen those patterns begin to emerge, and we find ourselves in another one of those patterns today. But God has spoken to so much so that at first, the people of the land heard of the mighty things that God had done, and their hearts melted in fear because of it. What a mighty God we serve. He is the Almighty One. So let's look at the first of our characters. The first question in this is, how do the kings of the land respond? How do the kings respond? Well, before they had heard of the mighty things that God had done and their hearts melted. But now, what does the passage say? As they heard what happened at Ai, where previously hearts melted in fear because of what Yahweh had done, they are now encouraged, rather, to attack because of what Israel has done. You hear the shift in the target of the language. They had heard what God had done, and their hearts melted. But as they hear what Israel had done, they became more robust in their rebellion. Moreover, where they appear previously to have been divided, it seemed as if Israel was going to go from city to city to city to city, working through the land with these divided cities and kingdoms, now they come together. They are united. Sin has opened a door for Israel's enemies. Sin has opened a door for Israel's enemies. We see a further result of that sin of Achan at Jericho that now shows that these results of each person's sin and the individual and corporate go further than we would normally imagine. Now you see these various Canaanite kings no longer melt in fear, but instead gather with a united resolve to not just defend themselves, but to attack, to go out and meet 
Israel. I think it is important for us as we look at today to look at these, these, these concentric circles, these waves that come from the rock dropped into the pond, from the sin that drops into the life of the corporate Christian church. You see how sin splatters and moves out to affect other people. Yes, it was dealt with in the Valley of Achor. Yes, it was paid for. But all choices have consequences, good ones and bad ones. And we see the consequences of sin continue to plague Israel in this sense. So why do we talk about sin? Because of the corporate nature of it. It's not something that our flesh and the devil and the world want to say just affects you. Don't worry about my life. Don't worry about my, who I love. Don't worry about what I do on my own. It is just my home. It only affects me. There's a lie. It affects everyone. The first sin of Adam affected the whole planet in one moment. This is why we kill sin. This is why we mortify, put to death the flesh. The less vigorous we are in dealing with sin, the more we open ourselves to such attack. The kings have now decided to step up against Israel. You might be thinking to yourself, Rusty, this is only the first couple of verses of this passage. The rest deals with a different nation. I would agree with you. But in Hebrew literature, what you put of most importance is usually at the front. Why is it that the writer of Joshua goes from this uh, time of worship into this rebellion of the kings? We need to recognize what right worship of God has an effect, what it does, what the effect it has in the world. A.W. Pink says this, that to acknowledge the rights and authority of the Most High and submit themselves to his revealed will is something which the unregenerate both resent and oppose. They desire to be lords of themselves and are resolved to go their own way. The language expressed by the actions of all of them and by the mouths of many is that of the self-willed and arrogant Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Exodus 5.2. They're determined to please themselves. And that is the, the state of humanity. This is the very essence of what we call human depravity. Sin, by definition, is a revolt against God. It's a refusing to be in subjection to him. I hope you can see this in a unique and special way with the kingdom language that we're able to use every week with Joshua. We're dealing with a nation of people, a kingdom of people. That as it plays out in narrative, we're able to watch how that interaction plays out with the citizenry and with their king. How they serve the king or how they choose to serve themselves. And then how that kingdom interacts with the world and its kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world would say, in the face of the worship of Yahweh, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Sin is not only a determining to follow our own inclinations, but it is a fighting against our maker and our king. It's fighting against, there's a rebellion against it, there's a revolt against the one who crafted us, who made us with his hands, and with the king who rules over us. Now, I understand that it can be hard to see this so starkly sometimes. Our syncretistic world wants to blend all truth together. It can be your truth, it can be my truth, it can be real truth, and it can be mixed with whatever as long as there's some truth in it. As long as you have a little bit of vanilla in your ice cream swirl, it can still be Christian. And if not Christian, then at least good, right? Were that just 300 years ago when we bore the marks of the kingdom that we served on us, that we wore its colors inside the walls of the kingdom that we enjoyed, sending tribute from our bank accounts to the king that we loved, it would be much more clear. Or at least we might think that it might be. But there's a very clear test to see who we serve and how very clear it is that it is either one or the other and not both. We just have to open our eyes to really see it. Pink goes on to say this, Simply let 
the true and living God be seen and understood as his character set forth in the scriptures, and that enmity, that hatred, will soon be more evident. That stark contrast will, will start to appear. Let him be known as the divine king and ruler who shapes one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor, entirely as he pleases. Let him be seen as the ineffably holy one who cannot look on evil and hates all workers of iniquity. Let him be seen as the righteous judge of all who will by no means clear the guilty. And the fallen creature's hatred of one will appear in its true colors. Let him give to such creatures then his law and require unqualified obedience to it. And they at once rebel. For what is it that they really want? What do humans really want? If God would forgo, give over his sovereign rights, their opposition would be subdued. If he would lay aside his scepter as king, men would cease fighting against him. But because he declines to do so, the will of the creature is opposed to the will of the creator, and he refuses subjection to his throne. You want conclusive proof, he says? Conclusive proof that the sinner's nature is diametrically the opposite of God's is seen in his deadly opposition to the divine government. The moral law is both a revelation of its author's character. We see in the law God's character, and it's an expression of his will, what he desires for our lives. And man's repudiation of it exhibits the contrariety of sin to holiness. When we look at our king and ruler as people of this earth, everything inside of us hates it. People say, well, what about Jesus? Everybody loves Jesus, treasures Jesus. It goes on to say, not only was he despised and rejected by men, but as he plainly declared, they hated me without a cause in John 15. Nor did they make any attempt to cloak their malice. When he healed the sick and provided the multitude with loaves and fishes, their hostility was suspended. But when he pressed upon them the claims of his lordship, defined the terms of discipleship, and made known the character and requirements of his kingdom, their resentment soon flared up. Everybody loves Jesus when he's giving out loaves of bread and fish. When he says, come to me, and I'll make your burden light, but then presses in on them to understand that the burden is death to self, that you might find freedom in him. As we press in the claims of what it means to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ, as, as Jesus defines what it looks like to die to yourself and pick up your cross as he defines the terms of discipleship. And as he makes known the character and the requirements of this kingdom that we would enter into, we find that men hate Jesus. Our world, the kings, are resolved to fight. And not independently, but as one. God has spoken. How does Gibeon respond? They are a mighty nation. It would be wrong to underestimate Gibeon, even in their apparent humility here. They're a mighty nation. It says in chapter 10, the next chapter, verses 1 and 2, how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. Other kings feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Gibeon's not a, a pushover, but they apparently recognize that they're concerned about either losing because of what God had done, unlike the way that the other kings respond, or they recognize that they will at least suffer great loss, right? And it will be a bloody battle, and it's not good for them. So... What were their true motivations in the way that they respond? We don't necessarily know. There, there is a lot happening here in the ethical questions in this chapter, and we're going to talk about pieces of them, but there's a lot more discussion to be had. We do have two kind of clear pictures into their motivations, one at the beginning of the chapter and one at the end. At the beginning, we see this. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning. 
That is a, a revelation into their motivation. They acted with cunning. But by the time we get to the end of the chapter, and this could be, this could be a, a switch, this could be all along, we don't know. Verse 24, they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Think regardless. When we look at this spiritually considered, it illustrates this principle. That the unbelieving world does not remain in ignorance of the mighty works of God. The unbelieving world is not in ignorance as to what God has done. Romans tells us that. It is clear from creation that there is God. And the only way around that is to suppress the truth, to take the truth and press it down, to suppress it, to make it quiet. And what, what's crazy about that is that it renders the, their unbelief then in Jesus and the gospel the more inexcusable and it adds to their guilt to be a truth suppressor. The, the miracles of Christ were not wrought in a corner, but they were openly done and publicly, so that even his enemies were obligated to acknowledge the reality of them. There's no question that Jesus was making people walk that had never walked, that he was giving sight to the blind. There's no question that it was happening. It was all a question of by whose power it was happening. But whether or not it happened or not, there was no, no discussion so Gibeon saw something was afoot. How should they then respond? What's interesting as we look at this story, they decide to act with cunning and put on the torn up clothes and, to, and have old food and attempt to make it look as if they had traveled from outside the land. For in Deuteronomy, we're told that Israel was not allowed to make any pact of peace or covenant with anyone in the land. Anyone, none. They were all to be devoted to the Lord for destruction, what we call the bond. Israel was allowed to make peace with those nations that were outside the land. They could go to them and offer peace. And if they received it, then they would not be destroyed. They were not allowed to do that with those in the land. Gibeon is from within the land. And so they used this cunning, this deceit, to try to appeal to that option but what's interesting is that when you look at the way they engage it, it tells us more about Israel than it tells us about Gibeon. If you look at this tale told to Joshua by these Gibeonites, it reveals how everything in it was designed to appeal to Israel's pride. It was designed to appeal to their pride. It talks about the distance that they have come. If I'm Joshua or even the, the leaders of Israel to have had military conquest already and to have our tales spread far and wide and to have them come and offer tribute is a pretty exciting thing, right? Look, look, look at how, look at, look at what we, we have done. Look at who, who we, we are, right? Just to build up some pride. When they continually to refer to themselves, the Gibeonites refer to themselves to Israel as servants to Israel. They want, they want to serve. They want to be the subservient. Well, surely you are greater. The fact that we have heard, we keep hearing these things that, that has happened, that Israel has done. How far, they don't mention Ai. They don't mention Jericho. They don't want to play their hand and reveal that they're from the area, right? So let's talk about these things that happened before we're out there, right? Surely, I couldn't have got there. Look, we've heard so much appeals to their pride. Church, beware flatterers. Beware flatterers. I would love to hear the last time that you heard that admonition from the pulpit. This is not a thing that we do. Talk about pride, talk about humility. Let's talk about flatterers. Romans 16, 17 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them period. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. There's no question in this passage 
that Israel is naive. Israel throughout, we'll talk about how Israel responds in just a second. Israel throughout does not respond in rebellion against God. Right? They don't actively choose to dishonor and go against what God says. But they are deceived. They are deceived. As Eve was deceived, Israel is deceived here. And so, recognize that the Gibeonites and Romans fulfill that seat of someone who does not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Jude, verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. We'll talk about the ethical dilemma in a minute. You might say, they're just trying to save their life. Can't you respect that? No. <laughs> they were to be devoted to destruction. We forget that this is God's war on sin. Remember two weeks ago? This is God's judgment on sin in Canaan. This is a fulfillment of the curse of Canaan from Genesis chapter 9-ish. It's a fulfillment of that curse, Right? And you say, well, what about Rahab? I'm glad you asked. We'll talk about that in a second. But these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. Not to be commended for trying to save their own life. This is a judgment on sin. They are already dead in their trespasses. What they are doing is dividing. Who are they dividing? At the very least, the very least, they're dividing Israel from itself. And we see how that goes at the end of 2 Samuel, right? We, we see that Israel ultimately will take the land, but then split apart. The Gibeonites end up having a share in some of that. But at worst, we see that they're trying to separate Israel from God, from Yahweh. Division is the goal when it comes to these that speak by flattery and deceive the hearts of the naive. So don't listen to them. Avoid them, as Romans says. Avoid them. So, when you look at the way they go about deceiving, they appeal to pride and they avoid truth. Appeal to pride and avoid truth. As you talk to people in the church, as you talk to people in the world, look for these things. Are they appealing to your pride? And are they avoiding truth? How do they avoid truth? In their replies to the elders and to Joshua, they never declare their nationality or name the place of their birth. Joshua asks them squarely, who are you? Where did you come from? It's not just small talk. He knows the law of God. He's seeking to clarify whether this is someone within the land or without. And how do they respond? We came from far off. That a place, right? Have you seen Aladdin, the new one? You talk about where he, Aladdin comes from and he has to make up Alibaba. Well, I know the map pretty well, Jasmine says. Where's Alibaba, right? And Jeannie has to make it appear on the map, right? And just throws it on there. That's what they're doing. I'm from such and such. You need to have the wisdom say, where's such and such? I've not heard of such and such. Where is this place? They don't name who they are. <coughs> they don't say who they are. They don't, they don't talk about their place of birth and their heritage. Nonetheless, they invite them into covenant and to peace. It's interesting that they avoid the truth. Ensure that people answer the question. Don't be naive or suffer their ignorance. As you talk to people, your brothers and sisters, as you talk to people in the world, and you ask them questions. Pursue truth. Pursue truth. If they don't answer your question, ask it again. I cannot tell you how often in counseling and in challenging situations, I ask the same question more than once. Most of the time, I'm just repeating my question, sometimes in different ways, but usually it's the exact same question. Those that want to trick you will try to walk around the question. They will avoid the truth. Those that want to deceive you, who are in league with Satan, 
those who are not in that kingdom, right? We're talking about the stark reality of the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, will deceive you. Ask the question again. Get the truth. It could be that they're ignorant. They don't recognize that they didn't answer the question. Maybe they think they're answering it and they're not. Lead them. Pursue truth. Clarify. Find what is right, what is real, what is true, what is of substance. But even worse, you see people that won't engage not just the truth, but the truth of the Scriptures. How often I engage people in the Scripture and they don't even respond to it. They don't even pick it up and do anything with it. Imagine throwing a ball of Play-Doh to someone and having them just like not touching it. They, they don't catch it. They don't pick it up and manipulate it. They don't pass it back. They don't ask what color it is. No engagement whatsoever. If you give the scriptures to someone and they don't respond to it, not necessarily with other scriptures, that's certainly helpful, but if they don't engage you with what you're talking about, the, the critical question we need to ask is, why? Why won't you engage me with this text? If this Christian is what we base our life on, it demands that we do something with it. If it's not what we base our life on, then you should not be surprised that we don't engage with it. Matt can tell you of one meeting that we had years ago at Panera. Um, you shouldn't see the seasons change when you're sitting in one time in Panera. We sat there for six hours talking with a brother about concerns that they had, and one after another after another gave them scriptures. And foolishly, we just let them keep asking questions, just going around them, going around them, going around them, going around them, going around them. And we left saying, like, did he say anything from, from the Bible, like a word? That is someone who is seeking division between you and your God or between you and your people, between you and truth. They're serving themselves. Gibeon might be serving themselves. That's how they respond. We look for truth. How does Israel respond? Israel's deceived. Israel's deceived. It's not new for them. Jacob covered himself with hairy skin and masqueraded as Esau. King Saul disguises himself and goes to the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28. Wife of Jeroboam feigns herself to be another when she visits the prophet Ahijah. His eyes were old and blind, 1 Kings 14. And the wolves in sheep's clothing in Christ's day. And Paul's, uh, in his second epistle, Paul warns the Corinthians against false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. 13. Jude complains that ungodly men had crept in unawares into the assemblies of the saints. And the churches are still full of these people today. It is the goal and responsibility of the church to guard the door to look for hypocrisy. That's what this is defining. For those that say they are one thing and are in reality are not. The Gibeonites are saying they came from without, but in reality they are not. We need to be on guard for those that would come here in the name of Christ, but do not know him. And we see very clearly where the blame falls in verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. The book of Joshua is not known for giving us a whole lot of motives or reasons. It just mostly describes events. This is a, a singular, spectacular moment that it provides for us to see what was wrong. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. That's the character we're missing. What did the kings respond? How did they respond? How did the Gibeonites respond? How does Israel respond? What did God say? Where's he? Why isn't he a character in our narrative? He did not ask counsel from the Lord. This clearly means prayer in general. Clearly means prayer. Church, prayer is one of our three streams of grace. The word, fellowship with the saints, prayer. It's as clear of a, of a, of a, of a plug as I can give to be here tonight for Habits of Grace. Pastor Greg... That's what we're talking about, those three streams of grace. 
Are you immersed in all three of those? Your presence here today does not mean you're immersed in the community of the saints. Does not mean that. Dive all the way in. Don't present yourself as someone here who's in the community of grace without actually in reality being that. Don't be a hypocrite. Enjoy what community has to offer here as a means of grace. The warning to us elders, that this is one of the key principles and, and things that we should be about. Acts chapter 6, verse 4, that it responds to those that were calling for them to cease teaching and to wait tables and serve. He says, raise up, raise up the, the, the deacons so that they may devote themselves to that. But we, verse 4, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. How easy it is for us to slip into just the latter and neglect the former. Indeed, that's where I found myself struggling this week. Generally, I spend a great deal of time in prayer, particularly at the beginning of my sermon preparation. But being out of rhythm, out of whack, I neglected that stream of grace. And it wasn't until late in my preparation where I'm like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go with this. I have all of these pieces, and I have no idea how to put them together. But I realize my mistake. We devote ourselves, elders, to two things, prayer and the ministry of the word. What happens is we slip into what we can do, our own ministry. When we neglect one of those two things, we drop into what we can do. Well before the Renaissance, well before Erasmus, we find ourselves engaging with humanism. Humanism is simply what the Israelites practiced here. According to the director of the British Humanist Association, there's four basic tenets of humanism. One, man is on his own. Two, this life is all. Three, an assumption of responsibility for one's own life. And four, and for the life of mankind. As human-focused, neglects God in every sense. And so what we see here in those four tenets is Israel adopting all of them. And pride, what we would call pride. Pride makes us self-sufficient. Man is on his own. Pride that looks only at man's own kingdom. So how do we see this? Destroys the view of eternity. This life is all. Instead of thinking 30 million years from now, we think just 30 years from now. It destroys kingship of God for kingship of self, an assumption of responsibility for one's own life. And pride that looks to use others and for the life of mankind. Humanism ultimately ends up in using others for your own good to build your own kingdom because you're on your own and this is all there is. Israel had dropped into the same thing. They were self-sufficient. They looked only at their own kingdom. They had a 30-year view instead of a 30-million view. They destroyed the kingship of God for kingship of self, and they ended up using others. We'll explore this further in the second point as we look at Israel's response. The problem for Israel is that they had no excuse for being deceived by appearances. It might have been a really good lie. All they had to do on the humanist side even was say, where'd you get that bread? They could have bought it in transit. It could have been a really good lie, but they had no excuse for being deceived. Verse 14 makes it clear that that was the expectation, that God would give the answer. In fact, they already knew that he would. There was no ignorance concerning God's will as to his path or what their duty was. The Lord had already made ample provision for this instruction. It is our holy privilege to go into the antitypical Eleazar. The antitype would be Jesus, right? We get to go to Jesus and ask counsel of him. And the great high priest of the spiritual Israel, Eleazar in their case, will through the Urim and Thummim, which signify lights and perfections of his word, lead us in a plain path. They had a way to basically cast lots and find out what they should do from God. What did they have to do? Go and ask. Go and ask. It's the same thing that I say to my kids when they show up with chocolate on their face. Are you allowed to have that? No. I want you to have chocolate all over your face. I love to give you good things. All you had to do was come and ask. I would probably say yes, and you could enjoy this. But as it is, now there's consequence for your disobedience. All you had to do was go and ask. 
We know now to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him. Those are the requirements that God gives us. And if we would meet them by His grace, which He is ever ready to give to us, if we would seek it, James 4, 6, then His promise is sure that He will direct our paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. As someone else has aptly expressed it, this is the polar star of a child of God. Faith in His Father's providences, promises, and grace. Let the eye look upward, and all will be light. Someone else goes on to say, to trust in the Lord with all our heart is to make Him our entire and exclusive confidence. To lean not unto our own understanding is to renounce our own wit and wisdom and refuse to rely upon the proud dictates of our own reason. To acknowledge God in all our ways is to own His proprietorship and supremacy to ask counsel of Him, to seek His glory, and to be conformed into His will. Comply with those conditions, and divine guidance is guaranteed. His Spirit will bring to our mind the verse which is exactly suited to our case, and He will cause us to be regulated, controlled by the same. We must discern what is right and true. In every case, from our theology, the way that we think about God, to our community, the way that we engage with God's people. We must be a people who can think. We must be a people who can see rightly, not with their own eyes, but through the truth that the Scriptures give us. There is no excuse for Israel here. God has offered every answer. We know that the New Testament tells us that the Word of God is sufficient for all things for a life of godliness. We have all that we need. We must be a people that are right and true to actually and appropriately represent Yahweh. How did Israel respond? Poorly. And they're at risk of being divided amongst themselves and from the land. A.W. Pink goes on to say, that which the devil is most anxious to destroy is the testimony of the saints as a peculiar people. By peculiar, it doesn't mean necessarily weird. The older language of special, unique Satan, the enemy, wants to destroy the testimony of the saints as a special people devoted unto God, walking with Him in separation from the ungodly. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So let it be carefully noted that the enemy did not introduce among the wheat darnel or thistles. Those would be other plants. But what do we see in Matthew? The enemy creeps in and plants tares among the wheat. Tares among the wheat. They are a spurious imitation of wheat. They are so closely alike in appearance that you cannot distinguish one from the other until the time of harvest. Jesus tells the story of the people who went and, and sowed wheat in their field. They came home, they went to sleep. The enemy sowed tares among it and left. You will not see the difference between the two until harvest time comes. And so these Gibeonites came not in their true character, but they posed as those who came from a far country, you're not going to be able to see the difference in this united, peace-now-made promise until it's too late. In fact, Gibeon was going to be a thorn in Israel's side to contribute to splintering and division throughout their history. The Lord has spoken. What do we do? What do we do? We must walk out the Word in faith trying to keep it simple. You get lost in these different responses. This is ours. We must walk out the Word in faith. How did the kings respond? They did not surrender. They did not consider themselves outnumbered and cast themselves on Joshua's mercy. Even after learning about the miraculous deeds of Yahweh, they do not surrender. And we'll see their coming end here in the next coming chapters. And nor, church, do the enemies of the Christian. They don't surrender. No matter how clear and full the victory God may grant us, we must not conclude that the worst part of the fight is now over. Satan is relentless in his assault on God's people and kingdom. He never 
accepts defeat or quits the field. You would think that he must recognize the utter futility of attacking Jesus and tempting him in the desert, but he did not. And though completely defeated and routed in his attempt, it was only for a season, for another opportune time. He's coming back to try again. Why then should any of Jesus' followers expect to be exempted from this? The same is true of the flesh, our own flesh with all its evil lusts. Indwelling sin never surrenders to the new nature, Romans chapter 7, nor ceases its attacks upon it. Rather, the farther a Christian advances into an experiential entrance into and an enjoyment of your spiritual inheritance, the fiercer the conflict becomes. The closer you get to Jesus, the harder it gets. And the more determined and concentrated the efforts of the enemies that are going to be to thwart you. Our enemy will continue to ignore the word. A word that has gone so far as to say it's over. To ignore the fact that he says it is finished. To ignore the fact that death has been defeated. To ignore the fact that sin is already paid for. It will continue to ignore the word. Our flesh will continue to ignore the word. It is a body of death that we have to be rescued from. We long for the day when it will die and we are given a new flesh. Our enemy and the flesh will respond the same way the kings do. How does Gibeon respond? We get to see and deal with a little bit of what they were after here. How does Gibeon respond? Well, they are given this peace accord from Israel, right? Joshua says, yes, so we, we will we'll join you in peace. Then the jig is up. They find out when, you know, said Gibeonite randomly shows up with his really nice coat on after having just worn sackcloth and say, hey, where'd you get that? Oh, from my house, it's just a couple miles down the street. You're what? Your house, you live here? They find out that this is not from a far off land. They actually are all around, right here. Joshua says, Why did you deceive us? Good question to ask. Why did you deceive us? We feared greatly for our lives, verse 24, because of you, and we did this thing. Now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. Now, at this point, we don't know how God feels about this whole transaction. We know that they did not do what they were supposed to do to the Gibeonites. We won't find out for a couple chapters how God feels about this. Just like we didn't find out how God felt about Achan until after Ai. But within the book of Joshua, we see that exclusion is always seen in terms of those who oppose God's purposes. They're being committed to death because they oppose God's purposes. Jericho, Ai, the remainder of the people in the land. And we'll see that very clearly in the coming chapters. But this group is included. Why can they be included? Because they made peace with them. And it would be a compounded sin for them to then turn upon their oath. So you enter into this ethical dilemma that we'll talk about with Israel. But regardless of that, for the Gibeons, they place themselves into Israel's hand, the Joshua's, and says, do with us what you believe is right. Appeal to his justice, his sense of understanding of what has happened here. And we see that the quality to which this inclusion of them how much they enjoy that is going to depend on the extent to which faith is actively confessed. It appears that they didn't just fear for their life. It appears that they recognize that Yahweh is God. They may not have been as excited about it as Rahab was, 
But they also weren't necessarily opposed to it as the kings are setting themselves up to be. You see, we find ourselves here with this kind of halfway point. On this side, we have Rahab, who's excited about joining the people of God, wants to obey his purposes. Not only is just not against Israel, but is for Israel. On this side, we have the kings of the land who are now ready to gang up together and go out and meet Israel in battle and seek to be done away with them once and for all. They oppose God and his people and his way. We find the Gibeons here who are not opposed, but we don't know how for they are either. We have this halfway point. Now, if you can't see great grace here, I can't help you. They should be put to the sword. That was the command. Instead, they are brought into Israel and allowed to live. Beyond that, they're placed in such a way as to serve not just the people, which is what they say at first, but Joshua hones it to a point and says, you will serve in drawing water and cutting wood for the tabernacle, for the altar. You get to be a part of our worship. And we know from the remainder of the law that those who could serve and worship were those who actually worshiped. And so it seems as if there is at least a great portion of Gibeon being brought into the salvation. Now understand, the whole nation is not just saved, just as all of Israel is not necessarily saved, right? We're moving in the Old Testament as a people groups. But we see that Gibeon is brought in in this sense. But at the end of the day, what we understand is that God's people have always been made up of those committed to him. Whether it's all of Israel or the portion of Israel, whoever is committed to him is God's people. And they happen to be in God's place and under his rule. That's our definition of kingdom. The Gibeonites seem to be becoming God's people in his place, under his rule, and no longer their king. And we see great grace in the fact that, as the psalmist says in 84.10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Can you imagine a Gibeonite saying, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness? What great grace that is. In fact, you will see later in Nehemiah that a great portion of Gibeonites is part of the returning group with Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. They are as good as in. But at the same time, we'll see that it will cost Saul seven of his sons. Seven of them will be hanged in a way of repaying Gibeon as David upholds the vow that Joshua made. Saul attempts to exterminate the Gibeonites from the land. Full-on genocide against the Gibeonites. But God maintains this covenant that was made. Sends drought upon Israel for three years. David says, what gives, God? God says, you're going against the covenant that you made with Joshua. David goes to Gibeon, says, how can we make this right? Gibeon says, give us all of the sons of, David, of uh, Saul. Saul keeps one of Jonathan's sons because he's already made that oath. But seven of Saul's sons die as a payment against Gibeon. It's a big deal what happens here. We see how things should have gone, how they did go. That's the life that we engage in, isn't it? Let's bring us home and talk about how Israel responds and how we should respond in these kinds of situations. Pink says this, he says, Here we are shown the nature of such immediately upon Israel's solemn renewal of their covenant with Jehovah. At the end of eight, they had worshipped, right? They had rededicated themselves. They read the law. And then what happens? Uh, they, they oopsie again, immediately. <laughs> the lesson is plain. It is when God's people are most conscious of their obligations, when most determined by grace to discharge the same, when most zealous in fully consecrating themselves unto the Lord, that the ire of Satan breaks out the fiercest. When you're closest to Jesus, when you're most excited to do what you are called to do, when you are most fully zealous in consecrating yourself to the Lord, you have an enemy who hates all of that. Don't forget it. We just saw it in 1 Peter 5. You have an enemy who hates all of that. 
And equally so, your own body hates it. Your own evil lusts, varied and numerous. Look, look at them. What fights against you all the time? Self-will, pride, unbelief, slothfulness or laziness, cowardice, impatience, discontentedness, and a host of others. These are the things that we have to not just resist, but mortify, put to death. The danger is even in being so prideful is to think when we have overcome one, we're actually closer to falling over that all over again. When we have a missions week, when we have a fantastic worship service, when we're going on sabbatical, when we're entering into this promised land, so excited for what God has in store, look down, let's see so easily trip. We see that Israel has now this thing to solve. They've made a bond they should not. How do you overcome it? Well, the key to solving this problem that they've created is to go back to what God has already revealed. Shocking. What does God say? Now they ask the question. What should we do? We'll see what God said. The initial problem was caused by a failure to seek Yahweh, so the solution needs to have seeking Yahweh at its heart. No doubt there's going to be many times when God's people make faulty decisions, especially when we fail to seek God faithfully. But this account does not stay with the mistake. It goes on to model a response that can make the best of the situation. So you might say, well, it seems like this was God's plan, right? Like, they're now saved, right? That's good. That's what we should want. It is. We want to see all souls saved, but first and foremost, we want to see God's name made great. And so as we look at judging sin in ourselves and in others, we recognize that all belong in death against the holy God. And just because it might seem as if this is a desirable outcome does not give us reason to go with any means we might seek to find that end. Just because it looks good to have the Gibeonites saved doesn't mean that it was appropriate for them to break the law of God. And regardless, God's word, not his secret will, is the rule of our responsibility. We don't speculate for God. We follow what he said. We follow what he says. There is nothing stopping Yahweh from providing a ram for the Gibeonites in the same way that he did for Abraham and Isaac. There was nothing stopping Israel from obeying God's word, pursuing the Gibeonites to death, and God intermediating then. Just because it looks good on how it ended up does not mean that we got there the right way. Our obedience, our responsibility is to God's word. James 1.5 tells us, if we lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously unto all without reproach, and it will be given him. He won't even say you should know better. He'll just give you the wisdom. That's what it means with, with, without reproach. Seek him. But what happened? The Gibeonites repeatedly appealed to behold or see. They were appealing to Israel's pride and to their senses. Look at the present condition of the food and the clothing. But there's no more reason why Israel should be deceived through their eyes and their ears. Had they walked by faith instead of by sight, it would have been impossible for them to be deceived. Faith always has to with God and is regulated by His Word. Faith is the expression of a spirit of dependence upon Him. And that in turn issues from the realization of our own insufficiency. If we are prideful, we will be humanists. It's just us. I am king, and this is all there is. But if we are a people of truth and humility, we're constantly seeking God. Do you know what the Lord has to say about this life? That's my plug for systematic theology tonight. We start at five. Please be here. What does God have to say about relationships? What does God have to say about the way we talk to each other? What does God have to say about the family? What does the Word of God say about parenting? What does the Word of God say about our worship? What does the Word of God have to say about sin? 
What does the Word of God have to say about Sabbath, repentance, love, charity, the way that you give? What does it have to say about your career? What does it have to say about the way that you dress? What does it have to say about the music that you listen to, the TV that you watch, the people that you hang out with, the food that you eat, the exercise that you get? What does the Word of God have to say about all of these things? If you can't give me three verses on each of those, you're in danger. It's not a prideful thing. That's a neglect of the Word. Someone in the congregation of Israel needed to say, hold up, let's pray. He says to pray several different ways. In fact, he gave us this handy place at the tabernacle of which we can do that. And no one did it. But if we're a people of truth, then we will engage truth. It's a stark reality whether it's our kingdom or his. It's very clear. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is defining this. We want to favorite in general. But really, really picturing this, I think, is in John 8. Go ahead and flip there if you'd like. John 8, starting in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Someone didn't read Exodus. How is it that you say you will become free? They hone in on this thing, the truth will set you free. We've never been enslaved. What do you mean we will become free? We're, we're offspring of Abraham. We're, we're people of the promise. We're Christians, is what they're saying. Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Well, they answer him, Abraham is our father. Do we not have the same father? You just said we have different ones. So are you not part of Abraham? They're asking Jesus. Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. We're not children of Ishmael. We are people of the promise they keep holding up. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he's the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. It's not just a story about letting some people in to save their life. And not to be too dramatic, it's black and white. It's the people of God and the people of the world. It's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. That's been the story from Genesis to Revelation, when the dragon comes and is still not done rebelling, but wants to consume the child. This is the story of our lives. Will we be a people of truth? Or will we be a people of lies? Will we hear our Father of truth? Or is our Father 
the murderer, the liar, the deceiver. As we look at Joshua's response, he does what he can to do justice, to rule rightly, to follow the word going forward as he should have in the first place. He seeks to bring a people in and bring them to God. For us, are you in the truth? It starts in verse 31 of John 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. God has spoken. We as his people must walk in it by faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken, that we're not left wondering. Father, there is no question how you would have us proceed. You are very clear. The very least of that is to simply ask for wisdom. The most clearest of that is you say this is the word of this is the will of God, your sanctification. That we might walk in such a way that reflects your son, that we put to death the old man and put on new life in Jesus, that we would abide in him who is truth, who is setting us free. But I pray for our people that we would be a people who love your word, who are not so easily deceived. But Father, when we are suspicious and rightly suspicious, even as, as the people of Israel were suspicious, Father, that we would not be deceived, but we would seek truth, that we would seek your face, because we know that you know the Father. And because he, the Father, has given us the word. Father, we thank you that you have made us a people in you, that you have adopted us as sons and daughters, that you have placed us in Christ. Let us Christians then be a people of your word, of Christ. Let us walk in it. Let us know it. Let us live by it. Let us engage in it. Let us demand that each other live by it. For that is the only place that freedom is found. Everything else is deceit and lies and death. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. The Word. Amen.